You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I'm your host, Rick Enlow, and I'm here with Dave Hillis in Tacoma, Washington. How are you doing, Dave? I'm well, Rick. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's great to be able to uh, to continue this discussion um, that's really based on a theme for the year. For, for some folks, they might not know that um, part of Leadership Foundation's kind of approach to a, a new year is to come up with a theme that mm-hmm. kind of dovetails with previous themes, but um, becomes a, a bit of a roadmap for uh, for a lot of different practices throughout this, this year. And so um, why don't you explain a little bit about this year's theme, just a reminder. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Rick, and, and you're right in that uh, this is uh, something that we do every year where we try to grab uh, an organizational theme that at least attempts to locate what we think the Holy Spirit is up to in our midst, uh, knowing mm-hmm. that uh, the Holy Spirit, of course, is up to many things. Uh, but could we, as best as we can, collectively um, discern uh, where we need to put our time and our effort and our energy? Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, uh, the whole uh, kind of theme uh, was around this idea of centering to expand. Uh, and as a good example of that, uh, we tried to measure every you know bit of work plan and strategic uh, movement forward as did it help LF uh, further center right ourselves, further grab a hold of our charism, and thereby uh, look to uh, to expand moving forward. This year's uh, organizational theme is traditioned innovation, mm-hmm. and this really Rick comes out of a a bit of a sense of uh, actually Jesus's own words uh, in one of his parables in Matthew 13. Um, I've made mention of this a couple of times before that you've got, you know, the big parables that everybody pays attention to, whether it's the sower, the weeds and the wheat. Uh, But there's one that has always, I think, struck me as both a bit enigmatic uh, in that, you know, you kind of go, what exactly is going on here? but also I think in its enigmaticness carries with it a, a kind of, uh, of relevance that I at least have pr- tried to pay attention to. And the parable is where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like the householder that goes into her house and brings out of it, which is that which is both old and new. Um, and th- there's something I think, Rick, that has always struck me about that parable that captures the very essence of of Jesus's ministry as we walk, watch him walk through the four gospels. Um, You know, he wasn't just a person that was obliterating that which was uh, and was bringing in something brand new that they'd never heard of. Um, He did that, but he also did it in light of saying things like, you know, I've actually come in in hopes to fulfill the law, right, to to bring about that which has always been there. So I think to do work, uh, to do ministry in the spirit of Jesus is really uh, casting an eye toward how does this both uh, anchor us in something that's been around a a very long time uh, and now begin to think about it in light of our particular context, uh, what innovations, uh, what additions maybe need to be brought about in order to uh, make it accessible for the time we're living in. So that's... yeah. That's the idea of the organizational theme this year. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, that's to me, it's inspiring because there's something, I guess you could even use the word uh, holy, uh, which, you know, in, in the sense of being separate or or set aside uh, in some of the uh, amazing traditions, you yeah. know, as, as people have understood 
uh, a relationship, you know, in Christ uh, in traditional ways. But then to obviously innovate, um, I had somebody tell me, ask me one time, where does it say in the Bible how you should use your i your iPhone, you know, twelve <laughs> or whatever? And I was like, well, <clears throat> that that innovation can be found you know, is embedded in the, in the tradition, you know I mean? And so yeah, I think this right. is really great. So a tradition innovation is kind of the theme for the year. And then inside of that, as we start to examine some specific traditions, and then we see expressions of their innovation, uh, yeah. we have kind of walked into um, this idea of a way of proceeding. And now I don't know if everybody uh, knows where, what tradition that comes from. So maybe you could tune us up on that. Yep. Great question. Um, and maybe one more uh, further preface. I, you know, Augustine did say this wonderful thing about the church, and I think it became a statement that was almost prophetic when it was uttered in the fifth century. He said that the church is something that is ever ancient uh, and ever new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, to think about uh, Augustine saying that in the fifth century, I, I mean, it absolutely still holds serve you know, 1500 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that that in many ways, I think is the genius of the church uh, and things like religious orders um, is it has both of those things woven together. One of those is something that the, uh, the Jesuits uh, have been about who on previous podcasts and other things that Elif has written, I have, I hope made it abundantly clear um, how uh, dependent I am on the Jesuits as a uh, religious order, not only for the spirituality, which I think is um, in some ways uh, hand in glove with regard to who LF is and our charism, but on a much more banal level, just how they functioned organizationally. And one of the things that the Jesuits uh, instituted was what they called their way of proceeding the basic argument, Rick, is that you know here was here was uh, Ignatius going to be sending you know men out all over the world, uh, and he recognized uh, even in the early 1500s that what you would face uh, in a place you know like you know uh, America uh, would be different than what you would face in Asia, and so he knew he needed to uh, make sure that his men were free to respond to the Holy Spirit in their context. But he also recognized that without some kind of framework um, that they would be you know, uh, all over the place and not able mm-hmm. to recognize each other's work. And so the genius of Ignatius is he created the way of proceeding that would allow Jesuits uh, to go through a process uh, to uh, make sure that whatever decision they came up with had these elements at play. So even if you came up with a different decision, you would be able to look at your Jesuit brother and say, I get you know, how you came about making that decision. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, that was really uh, is the perfect wineskin for leadership foundations. Um, we've time and time again talked about the, you know, what's going to work in Billings is going to be different than what works in Bangalore and what is effective in Dallas is different than what's you know, going to be at Plan Delhi. Yeah. So what we've tried to do is give our local leadership foundations that kind of freedom, uh, but make use of a process that has everybody uh, looking at issues, uh, you know, with a similar kind of lens uh, so that uh, whatever decision they come up with, they can acknowledge and recognize uh, this process in each other. Well, for sure. And even though maybe not all of us are students of 
um, who Ignatius is, uh, you know, just briefly, if you've crossed paths with, you know, uh, with that kind of history, you realize that he was actually involved in, in uh, innovating off of a tradition as well, you know, where That's he right. began to, you know, take the tradition of uh, a devotion to God and, and kind of to the streets, you know, in fact, uh, yeah. last week, I, after talking to you about, uh, you know, this, this idea of, of a way to proceed, I'm reading in uh, Psalm 16, and uh, there's a verse in 1611, it says, you make known to me the way of life, or, and I looked it up, and uh, it's mm. the, the idea is the path, it's, that's mm-hmm. the, the word for way, and so really, um, um, this is, uh, you know, uh, kind of right out of uh, one of the song uh, books, you know, that uh, the Israelis would be, you know, singing. Uh, and so I think that that this is a, a great, not only great theme, but a great example of traditioned innovation. Yeah. And when we think about um, this idea of a, a way so that we have like a, you know, a template or like you said, a, a, almost to use the path, um, you know, we, we understand the you know, the borders and, you know, it gives mm-hmm. us direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of, part of that uh, is this really great uh, conversation that we get to have um, by way of uh, our roving reporter, um, Noah Basket, but he, he's going to interview Richard Beck. When I first heard that, I thought, incredible. Richard Beck is my typing teacher from high school. <laughs> And I thought, man, the guy must be 90 years old. But then I found it's a different Richard Beck. He's a, he's a, a psychologist, <laughs> theologian. But, right, but right. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Richard, especially, um, uh, you know, in, in context of uh, yeah. this way of proceeding. Yeah. Um, so let me uh, give a little bit of context to my own literary biography. I, I had the good fortune here um, <laughs> now a number of years ago and, we shall rem- let that num- that word number remain uh, void, <laughs> given how many years it's been. But um, you know, I've I've always been a bit of a reader and have enjoyed picking up books. But I had a I had a mentor come in and just say, you know, uh, when you read, um, don't just read books, read an author. Uh, and he said, what will happen is that you will have the benefit of one uh, being able to, you know get to know, you know, a, a sort of, uh, you know, way of thinking about a particular issue. But on top of that, you'll also get to know a person, uh, him or herself, uh, whoever that author might be. So I've tried to do that every year now for the better part of, of 30 plus years of just to grab an author each year, go out and buy all of her books and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get to know her. Um, so here about three years ago, um, I stumbled, uh, would be probably the best way to say it, Rick, uh, onto Richard Beck. Um, I should shout, give a shout out here to a guy by the name of Paul Nectarlin, who runs a thing called the Girardian Lectionary. And I'm a part of that. Uh, and it's essentially looking at the lectionary each week through the lens of a, a Girardian anthropology. One of the things that Paul does extraordinarily well as he references other Girardians, uh, people who have made comment about a particular you know, text. And one of the things he did, and it was probably again three years ago, is he said, you know, um, this gets picked up in the book Unclean by Richard Beck. And <laughs> I remember it kind of going, oh, that's a great title. I, I mean, what, whatever else this book is, that's, that's a great title. 
So given given Amazon was sitting at the uh, my fingertips, I think I ordered the book yeah. in seconds, and before I knew it, the book had showed up. And it uh, it kind of turned my world upside down a little bit, Rick. I you know without going into a whole lot of detail because I think Noah's going to pick up on this in his conversation with Richard. But his argument in Unclean was that he essentially said, you can't understand the full weight of the ministry of Jesus if you don't understand that what he was entering into uh, was a culture of cleanliness or lack of mm. cleanliness. And that everything mm -hmm. uh, was measured you know, by that. Um, and I, I felt like uh, at the end of reading that book, there had been a veil pulled back a bit for me. Um, and that there was something much deeper, much more subterranean that was taking place that, you know, to be quite frank and to be, you know, actually a little bit embarrassed, I just had missed. Um, you know, I, I had read the Bible from a different perspective and Richard gave me a different way to read it. Mm -hmm. So since then, uh, because he is prolific, um, I've now, I think, read almost everything. Um, I've also become a pretty avid listener of his blog called Experimental Theology. I mean, anybody who has a blog that is prefaced with a quote from Flannery O'Connor, um, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you had me at yes to, uh, to quote a, a movie. Uh, and then also since then, I've had a chance actually now to get to know Richard, uh, where he has really become a friend uh, of mine, as well as Leadership Foundation. So um, I, I am just delighted that we are going to, you know, be able to, um, you know, share, I think, Richard, if that's the right way to say it, uh, with mm -hmm. the PLF audience, uh, because there's, there's very much, again, a, a deep resonance with regard to how he thinks and writes both as a psychologist, as a theologian, but really, I mean, a, a remarkably uh, insightful critic of the culture in which we are living. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I know that you are the one who introduced me to uh, uh, most things, if not all things, Girardian. And uh, that I think was um, a turning point in my um, faith journey as well, because I think I was sort of raised um, thinking that theology was, you know, enough. Right. And yep. then when uh, we began to realize that, Hey, wait a second. Um, you know, part of understanding, you know, um, how to see the, the, the text or, you know, even see life through the text is under having an anthropology as well, not just That's a theology, right. but understanding how, you know, what's up with the humans. And I think that you, um, even drill a little further into that anthropology when you get to a psychology, and a theology, you know, so that I think is Absolutely. what is so, you know, um, yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's, it's kind of funny when I finally uh, worked up the nerve to reach out to Richard and just say, you know, Hey, we, we got to talk. I mean, there's, there's something there. I mean, I think probably 30 seconds in the conversation, I go, well, you must be a Girardian. And uh, he said, <laughs> Oh my God, he says, I've, I've read everything by Gerard. And I said, well, what about James Allison? Oh, I've read everything by James Allison. <laughs> And then to Richard's great credit, I said, you know, Richard, are you like me where, yeah, you've read everything, but you understand very little. And he goes, yeah, absolutely. You know, sign me up to that as well. But it was, it was, it was in that course that uh, he and I began to have a conversation about his own kind of, you know, literary journey and the ways that, that someone like Gerard had influenced him. And he, 
in a very wonderful way, Rick, you know, he said, yeah, he says, Dave, you know, the book Unclean was, was seminal for me. I mean, it, it got me out there on the circuit. You know, I began to get asked to, you know, come to different churches and conferences and talk about this. Mm-hmm. He said, but then he said, uh, what began to happen was this very uncomfortable moment where people would say, I get it. Okay. Things are unclean. I'm supposed to somehow cross over and, you know, deal with that. How? And he said, I had no response. Um, and he says it put me into a bit of a tailspin. So he then wrote a book called Stranger God. Um, and effectively, it's a, a kind of exegesis of Matthew 25. Uh, and, you know, what does it mean to, to meet God, meet Jesus uh, in the dispossessed, right? The uh, mm-hmm. dispirited, um, you know, those that have been marginalized. And in that, um, he was looking for, you know, a very practical way uh, to, to do something about that and went on a bit of a search and read the Dorothy Days uh, of this world and the Thomas Mertens and the Teresa of Avila's. I mean, just looking for, you know, is there something out there? And what he discovered, and this really fits in, I think, Rick, to traditioned innovation, is that he mm-hmm. discovered um, what was, is, is called uh, The Little Way uh, by Teresa of Lisieux. So in a Catholic context, Teresa is considered the little flower. She's a saint. Uh, but, but a pretty remarkably unremarkable saint, uh, if you can say it that way, right? You've got, you've got the big ones out there, right? The, the Francis's and the Ignatius's and the Teresa of Avila's that did, you know, kind of fireworky kind of things. But with Teresa, she was, I think, died in her mid-20s, um, really never got outside the cloistered convent, uh, but was a pretty remarkable writer and, and wrote down things uh, that helped her figure out how to love uh, Jesus a bit better. And one of the things that people discovered in her writings was her little way. And it was this that Richard grabbed a hold of and said, that's it. That is what I can tell churches and denominations uh, how to begin to put legs to this idea of how to encounter, you know, a culture of, of, of the unclean. Mm-hmm. And the little way quite simply is is what it means to to love um and and there's three steps in this process that richard uh, talks about Uh, the first is this idea of of seeing um that everything right by way of of our work our engagement in another you know really is predicated Uh, do we see well um and that of course you know, as you know, Rick, is deeply resonant with leadership foundations. I mean, our, right, our whole right. argument about our charism is that it's in seeing the city as a playground uh, that is uh, absolutely a game changer. And so that uh, I, I found myself with Richard going, yep, I'm, I'm all in on that. He said yeah. the second thing that happens in the little way is that you stop, right? So if if you see well, if I see Rick um, in, in all of who Rick is, um, it ought to cause me to stop uh, and inquire further. Uh, and then mm-hmm. the third piece of this is you approach, right? So you see, you stop, and then you approach and you develop um, a relationship. You, you ask, you know, maybe that most radical of questions, which is, how can I help? Um, you know, what is going on? So that, uh, that is, I think, a good example of traditioned 
right innovation. And it's something right. that, that is, uh, again, very much uh, what I think leadership foundations have probably always instinctively done, but it's Richard's further thinking that has given us uh, even more of a framework of how to put, you know, again, legs on how we go about seeing the city as a playground. So, yeah. And, and, and certainly, um, you know, so, some of the words that, that we would recognize that are, you know, common tradition, uh, but then we can see where they would be innovated upon. Um, and one of those words, which you um, alluded to was just this idea of um, hospitality that, you know, that part of that, you know, understanding how to be hospitable is in, in, you know, takes a, a seeing a stopping and, you know, and a, uh, an approaching. Now, one of the things that I think is so interesting is that um, question I asked myself when I, I saw, um, you know, what Richard was going to talk about is this idea of being interruptible. And I th yeah. think that, you know, yeah. in our culture, that seems like what we're trying to avoid, you know, we don't, you know, try to eliminate all interruptions and, uh, and unfortunately yep. we may be succeeding at that. And yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he makes a couple comments like that, that I think are arresting. Um, I mean, you know, along with being interruptible, he, you know, he talks about this idea, but how do we, how do we begin to intentionally have places in our life? And he uses a, a kind of agricultural term, Rick, that'll get into your farming history, but that remains fallow, right? That just yeah. sits and waits uh, for a kind of germination. I mean, things like the Sabbath, of course, are practices that can be used. Sure. But even even in our daily life, I mean, where are those moments that you're kind of off the grid, right? You're you're uh, you're not answering your phone, you're not looking at your email. The other thing that he said that I thought was just great is he said, you know, it, it's all about love, and he goes, and the speed of love or the frequency of love is slow. Um, yeah, and I I I remember when he said that to us, I found myself going. Oh my God, that's absolutely right, and I am completely convicted. Um, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I oftentimes think that the, you know, my ability to love is how quickly I can respond, right? I mean, sure, how fast I can deliver on whatever the need is. Uh, but that that idea of, uh, of the speed of love is slow is uh, is absolutely right. Well, and we certainly are surrounded by frameworks like where. You know, we need to report outcomes, you know, in order to justify, you know, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And, you know, uh, our reports would uh, be less, I think, acceptable if we just said, hey, just <laughs> settle down. <laughs> it's this takes time, you know. But anyway, so we kind of have, have to deal with that. That's just the great, great observation. But so let's just um, lean into this and just probably if you're taking notes, you better get a few pages ready because uh, it's going right. to be rich. And, uh, and then at the end, we'll uh, we'll get a recommendation. Perfect. Yeah, my name is Richard Beck. I am a professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Abilene Christian University. I'm a blogger at Experimental Theology and an author of some books. And um, I'm just involved in the local ministries of my church here in Abilene, Texas, prison ministry, but also do a lot of adult faith, uh, work at a mission church as well, where we reach out to very poor and homeless friends on the margins. So that's what I do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Thank you, Richard. And um, maybe uh, uh, in uh, in Stranger God, you kind of open up uh, that book with um, kind of recounting um, both your experience working with this, um, I can't remember how you, kind of a mission church, uh -huh. uh, as well as kind of 
uh, your entry into prison system. It sounded like early on and a guard kind of asked you, you know, what the heck are you doing here? And um, I think, tell me how you responded and, and maybe what was a little bit behind that response. Yeah. So um, I was at, at a kind of a, I think a kind of a dead end in my spiritual journey. Um, as an academic person, I think God and Jesus had become academic interests of mine. And I felt I would need to change my social location. And I kind of took the promise of Matthew 25 uh, very literally, that if we welcome the homeless, if we welcome the incarcerated, that we will encounter Jesus in those moments. And so I started spending time at a little mission church called Freedom Fellowship, where we serve a meal every week for very poor people in our neighborhood. So I just started putting myself in that food line, not to serve, but to stand in line and sit down with friends and have a meal and start on some relationships and some friendships. And then the other thing I did was started uh, going to a Bible study out at a maximum security prison north of my hometown. And so I've been leading that for about eight years now for about 50 inmates at the French Robertson unit. And again, there to be among the incarcerated looking for Jesus. I mean, maybe say if you could even say a couple more words about I mean, why, yeah, why do you think it is that we humans and, you uh -huh. know, speaking from your psychology background, why is it that that uh, even that movement, that idea of moving to engage someone different through myself, why is that so hard? Why is it so rare? Uh -huh. Why don't we do it? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Um, I, I think the. The interesting thing about hospitality in Matthew 25 is it tends to reverse the normal way religious people or even people in nonprofits think about mission and ministry, that there tends to be a paradigm where I am the agent of grace, I am bringing a service, I am doing some benevolence, I am helping or fixing the world. But what Matthew 25 does is it, it reverses that dynamic that that I am not the Christ figure in that story. Christ is coming to me in the incarcerated or in the, in the homeless. And I think that reversal, that the Bible plays with a lot through scripture, that who's guest and who is host changes in very interesting and surprising ways. And so when we think about mission or ministry, it tends to be asymmetrical. Hospitality, I think, introduces us to something that's a little bit more delicate and, and, and dynamic, and that there can be interesting reversals. If you think like the, the road to Emmaus story, where the disciples welcome this stranger in, and they recognize Christ in the breaking of the bread, and suddenly now the guest that is welcomed in is the one hosting the table for us. see it in Luke where Jesus sends his followers out and, and their first job is to find a person of peace and to welcome hospitality from them and eat whatever is set before them. And so the agents of the kingdom become people who are, are welcomed by others. So there is this dynamic asymmetry there in the relationship that I think hospitality uniquely highlights. And I think that's hard for us to come back to your question is because that puts us in a a more of a powerless situation. I am not setting the agenda. Um, I have to wait and be patient and let grace come to me in, in the welcome of strangers. And I think for a lot of type A driven people, you know, who are out there on the streets changing the world, you got a lot of people, those 
energize people in your network um, to put themselves in more of a waiting posture to be received by the neighbor um, can, can feel a little um, passive and it, it can challenge some of our perhaps Messiah complexes that we have. Yeah. So I think there is something in us that struggles with that uh, being the one as the guest rather than the host of the table. Yeah. Yeah. Even the, the idea of kind of defining mission as seeking to receive the hospitality of another, right. Rather than this, I think you kind of said this kind of uh, what can very easily be this uh, kind of muscular Christianity, right. That seeks to impose hospitality and you're in the South, right? Uh, well, I guess Texas is kind of its own thing. At least that's what I hear, uh, but kind of good old Southern hospitality, right. It seems like in that notion, it's the kind of um, here's that those kind of defined roles of here's who's the provider of hospitality. Here's who's the recipient, your description around the, the delicacy, the dance, the, um, the role reversals in in an example like the road to Emmaus, one of my most favorite uh, stories in in the Gospels. Um, yeah, it's dangerous, or it's a little bit uncertain, right? It makes sense why maybe we would be hesitant to go there. Yeah, and it doesn't fit in with our the way we've made the kingdom of God and fit it to kind of corporate mindsets where we have five year plans. We have strategic initiatives. We have mission statements. Uh, we have measurable outcomes to evaluate ourselves. Um, and, and so we've been so captivated by that mindset, which puts the emphasis on my energies, my productivity in mission right, and in ministry. That hospitality is challenges a lot of that because now I am waiting um, for the welcome of another. and and waiting for them to educate me and take me by the hand and educate me about my neighborhood. They, they know where to go. They, they know where to invest. They know what the needs are. And so that's going to challenge a little bit of my pride to be a student for a while. Well, maybe uh, if we could maybe even talk a little bit more about uh, speaking personally, Richard, you know, mm -hmm. what has put putting yourself in that position in a place like prison uh, look like for you? What's, maybe been challenging about it or um, elucidating what's kind of, uh, how has that maybe shaped you or changed you or mm -hmm. maybe provided a new insight of who God is? Yeah, there are so many things I can share about that. So one that has impacted me personally, and I don't know how much this will resonate with, with the listeners is it, as a kind of a privileged, educated person, um, the gospel had become for me um, optional. And you see that among kind of privileged, wealthy people where the gospel is kind of thing they can give or take. They can pick it up or lay it down because we're fairly insulated in life because of our income, our insurance plans, our, our retirement plans. And so feeling kind of snug the kingdom of God can be something, you know, it's exciting or maybe it's, it's not. But when you put yourself in marginalized locations, when I put myself at Freedom Fellowship or in the prison, I was, I were in, I was in spaces where the gospel mattered, where the gospel uh, was life or death. 
And I always, I always kind of chafed at what Jesus says in the gospel. He says, you know, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And there's that social justice part of me that was always like, was that all they get? You know, they just get the gospel preached to them. Like, shouldn't we care about the systemic forces, you know, that were. Um, and then but then when you go out in the margins, you realize how life giving the gospel is as a source of dignity, uh, resiliency, um, hope, energy. And, and that challenged the way I had treated faith as kind of an optional thing um, to put myself um, as a student at the feet of inmates, where the question of God is not a question that's intellectual, that I can kind of, you know, I can just explore that the way you'd explore like a logic puzzle. But God was a live reality that, that was going to get them through this very long prison sentence or help them deal with the dehumanization that they faced every day. And, and that to me just re really revitalized my faith, putting myself in a place where the gospel matters and hear the gospel preached to me by people um, who I maybe previously would have looked down on um, as potential theological coaches or companions. Uh, it, is, it has been proven to me that they are speaking truth to me more than I've ever spoken it to them. But, but it's one of the things that made Christianity attractive in the first centuries. Like one of the things we know, I mean, I know people look at Paul in the New Testament and think that he was a little bit off on gender and slavery. And he gets dinged for that all the time. But it is an empirical fact that slaves and women flocked to the first century churches. And we know that because the Roman critics were like, hey, why would you even go hang out with these Christians? Because that is a religion of slaves and women. And so the question is, what did they find attractive in the gospel? And it was this dignity that was breathed into them. Um, their humanity, their, their, their status um, was rehabilitated. And you find that on the margins and you realize the power of the gospel for change um, because it takes somebody who's a kind of a victim or somebody who's been disposable in society and they begin to see themselves as a child of God. And that, that creates kind of a, that insulates and creates kind of a, um, an immunity to shame that is an amazing thing to see if you ever bear, bear witness to it up close. Yeah. Yeah. That's worth, <laughs> that's worth thinking through. Yeah. And I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you lifted up the early, the shape of the early Christian church. We talk a lot about the urban poor being in the LF, you know, context out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, they were urban poor churches. And it was, as you say, kind of the most marginalized in that context that were drawn closest to the gospel. Yeah. And so we need to, find ourselves continuing to be drawn close to the marginalized if we want to find good news. Mm -hmm. You know, we are living in a pretty polarized space in our world right now. And um, this idea of extending hospitality, I can speak this way because I'm in the very liberal Northwest in that way. Yeah. We, pay, we pay homage to this idea a lot. And we talk a lot about gathering lots of diverse people around the table, um, to try to break through our differences and the whole bit. Um, oftentimes, um, you know, we, when we try to do something like that, it's people gathering people, you know, singing from the same songbook. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, even this idea, um, yeah. So, uh, 
why is that? I mean, from what you, from what you understand about who we are as human beings, why, why are we stuck in this moment that we are, um, any, any insights on how we might break out of it? You know, I think one of the things I try to do for my, my more progressive students is I think one of the things that has happened um, on both the left and the right, politically and religiously, is that our, our imaginations for change has been reduced to electoral politics. That, that we believe that the only lever we can pull to change the world is winning an election. And so therefore, when our minds are reduced to that, then that becomes a very high stakes competition. And when you have that kind of high stakes competition, when everything hinges upon this election, then you're going to have that polarization. So to me, one of the things that we can do is stop focusing on national policy and start thinking more locally, which is what I love about your organization, about the neighborhood, that when we start investing in local acts of kindness and care and service and just neighborliness, when we are looking people face to face, uh, people get rehumanized. And the other thing you will discover if you engage in local action is that your companions in that journey will be more diverse. And so I find myself out at the prison working with a lot of different chaplains. And this is West Texas. So I, I would be among the more progressive people out at that prison. But I'm working alongside people that are sympathetic to Donald Trump. And, and, and we have interesting conversations about all that. But at the end of the day, we stop and then the ministry takes precedence and we start doing that work together. And so, and so when you're rubbing elbows with people in acts of kindness and service, even though you still might have sharp disagreements and you might even be incredulous at, at, at the things you're hearing, it's hard to, de it's harder to dehumanize because you know that that person has a good heart um, and they're right there in the trenches with you doing service. So to me, that would be one redemptive way to think about it is get off social media and um, start getting out on the sidewalks of your town. Uh, if you are looking somebody face to face, that's a good sign. If you're looking at a screen, your heart will suffer. That's a great quote. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and really challenging these days, right? In light of the screen proliferation. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. it's harder. It is. Harder. But you're. I mean, yeah. That I. I. That is so true in my experience. I think so true in in the life of uh, LF of this idea of rolling your sleeves up with one another, um, working together, serving alongside one another, as the way to kind of find common ground versus sort of let's let's get around a table and talk. Sometimes that can, um, that can be, um, that can be really challenging without the, the trust building of actually working together. Yeah. The other thing I would say, again, as America increasingly moves into a post Christian context, we are still looking for an arena of moral heroism, right? We are, we are looking for an arena that can enshrine my most deeply held values about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and, and what is evil. And we're also looking for an arena of action. And I think as the, the country becomes more secular, 
the the new arena of moral action is politics. And, and that's where we're going to achieve this moral heroism is winning in that political arena. And I think with that, that hero project is also deeply implicated in my self-esteem. So that's another thing I would say psychologically is going on here is how the heroism the, that we're seeing play out in the political arena is deeply implicated in our self-perceptions. And that is also driving polarization because because this is the place where I am leading my meaningful life. This is the place where I will make a dent in the universe. And so it's become more psychologically high stakes in the way our self-esteem is tied up into our political performances. To be perceived as a hero by another, right? Because what is heroism if you're not being perceived that way by other folks? Yeah. Um, Which is kind of why we're drawn to social media, I think, as well, because it is a very performative, um, image-driven way of playing playing the, the heroic part. And, and so we, we worry about virtue signaling or uh, online activism. And, and why are we drawn to those? Because again, there are, they are uh, personas and masks that we get to show to others. And we can invest a lot of time and energy in all of that and really not cash that out in any sort of positive social action. Yeah, it, it reminds me, um... I mean, the little way is a great kind of antidote, right? Or a really, a, 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 the opposite of kind of what we're talking about. It's these, um, it's reframing action or even what heroic action is in these little small ways, these little uh, ways that are not perceived by others or recognized. It's the, it's the opposite of what we're talking about. And I know uh, St. Therese of Lisieux and her practice uh, the Little Way has had a really significant impact on you, Richard, in talking about this. So could you just uh, share a little bit about her? Therese of Lesuit, uh, she was in, um, lived in the late 1800s a little saint called the little flower in the Catholic tradition. And she articulated something called her little way. And a lot of these kind of amazing people of, of hospitality and welcome said that this was an important practice for them. And so I delved into that, that practice called the little way and said, what's, what is it about this practice that um, was so transformative? When you look at the little way, a lot of people focus on it um, as a practice of like humility, you know, doing, doing little, little small things with great uh, fidelity. Um, but as I understand uh, Therese of Lesu, she understood the little ways of practice of love. Um, she, when she looked at the body metaphor in Corinthians, you know, are, am I the hands of the church, the eyes or the mouth of the church? One of, I think her great mystical insights was she goes, you know, the part of the body that nobody has laid claim to throughout Christian history, um, the heart. And so her practice was to be the heart of Jesus, no matter where she was. So that means stuck in a traffic jam, standing in line at the checkout store, or Cornelius, as you walk down a city street and see a homeless person, that, that the discipline of the little way is this affectional practice of seeing the humanity uh, and the worth and the value of somebody. So what I did is kind of when I, she, she mainly described the little way in a series of anecdotes and stories of what she did in her monastery. And so what I've done is kind of distilled out of those stories, three, three practices. 
And they are, the first one is seeing, that the, the very first practice is perceptual. Um, we, our gaze is dehumanizing. Our, our gaze is dehumanizing. We, we do not see the humanity of the person standing right in front of us. They are an object of annoyance um, or fear or disgust or scorn. And so the first practice is learning just to see properly. Christianity is less a practice of believing and more practice of seeing. And so that's, I think, what the mystics teach us. That's that ancient tradition of the mystics that we don't believe in God. We see God. Uh, we encounter God. So a practice of kind of rehumanizing our gaze um, for our city um, and our social media feeds, I might say. That's a difficult practice of seeing people. Um, the second one is stopping, that, that we have to practice being interruptible, um, that, that hurry, our hurry and our pace is inhospitable. And so we have to make hospitality and welcome available in our time. And uh, so practices of inter, inter, uh, interruptibility, I often look at churches and they say, how am I going to practice this welcoming posture? And I say, well, work on the, work on the virtue of patience because you're going to allow somebody else's agenda to uh, take priority over your own. Um, and we could talk a long time about that, but there is love has a pace and it's slow. And, and so we have to pay attention to the, the engine of our days and how quickly they are running because that is an unhospitable pace of life. And then the last practice is approaching. Um, David DeLong in his book, Race and Place, talks about a thing called the social logic of homogeneity. The social logic of homogeneity is where like is attracted to like, same is attracted to same. And, and that's just natural human psychology. We're just attracted to people that look like us, vote like us, think like us. And, um, and when we are on what I call social autopilot, when we're really not paying attention to that, those affectional triggers about who I'm drawn to and who I'm repulsed by, we are drawn to the similar and the same. So the practice of approaching is disengaging the social autopilot to become more intentional to say, you know, normally I would move in this direction, but as a practice, as a habit, I'm going to move in a different direction towards other people to cross boundaries where I might not have done otherwise. And unless that is an intentional practice, um, we can go through an entire day just moving in the same social orbit or sphere. And so that's to me like the key practice. How do you get out of that social groove into novel locations? And it has to be an intentional habit. Somebody who really convicted me about the little way was Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day mm -hmm. was an activist. And she, I mean, I think she was arrested for civil disobedience into her 80s. I mean, she was a grandma and she was being put into prison. So she was pretty hardcore. And her first exposure to uh, Teresa Blaisu was, she was underwhelmed. She, she really thought it was just too small to be, to be considered, like it wasn't heroic enough. But it was only through time as she started to accompany people on the margins that she became a convert of it. And she said, the little way is small, but it is powerful. It is like an atom. It is very small, but the, but the atomic power of doing these little things with great love, to use the language of uh, uh, Mother Teresa, 
little things with great love, that there is a power in that, that if we just are faithful to those practices, they will lead us into some amazing journeys, into some amazing friendships in our neighborhoods, if we trust it. Again, on the front end, when you hear it, you're just like, is that all I'm supposed to do? Is just to be a little kinder? And that just seems like a throwaway line in our culture, you know, just be a little kinder. But the, but the little way is more than just random acts of kindness. It's fidelity to kindness in a very particular intentional way. That to me is the difference. Anybody can be randomly kind. You know, you can pay, we, we, we saw that, I don't know if it was a Taco Bell or a Subway where somebody kind of paid for the person behind them. And that, that, that payment went on for hours and we all love that, you know, the random act of kindness. But to me, the little way is harder. It's more of a, a discipline of kindness in a particular location with a particular neighbor, a particular hard spot in your life, that if you do that over time, um, you're, you're gonna grow a great garden of fruit, um, I believe. Yeah, well, Richard, uh, thank you again so much for, uh, being with us. And real quickly, before we let you go, uh, your next book, I think there might be a couple people that would be interested in picking it up, uh, especially with that title, uh, Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. Any uh, sneak preview you could give us of kind of what you delve into there? Yeah. So Hunting Magic Eels, um, and you have to read the first chapter to understand what that is even about, um, and is, a, is a, a book about finding God in a secular age. And the argument of the book is that we tend to think of Christianity as a matter of belief. And it's harder and harder for many of us, my students in particular, I'm a college professor, to believe in God. And Christianity seems increasingly in a post-Christian world to be um, the request that we believe in unbelievable things, and that's harder. But the argument of the book is that God is more a matter of attention, and that our attention has been pulled in a variety of ways, and that if we could learn to attend more intentionally to the sacred and the divine that is always right in front of us, as Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is in your grasp, it is in your midst. If we could retrain our attention, then the God who has seemed to be absent from our lives will come suddenly into view and re-enchant uh, our faith again. So it's about finding God in a secular age. So that confirms it, Dave. This is not my typing teacher from high school. <laughs> this is a different Richard Beck. And uh, no offense to Mr. Beck and his beautiful wife, Evelyn, but, you know, wow. What what a what a cool thing to to not only, um, you know, find out about an author, but hear his voice. So um, what a gift. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm tempted, Rick, as I've said a couple times before, I told you so. But, you know, that would <laughs> that would that would diminish, I think, um, Richard, in that. You know, he's he's somebody that has been out there and has read or, or written and talked. Mm. So <clears throat> the notion that somehow I brought him uh, is is not not correct. 
uh, I am very grateful that uh, in many ways, um, I feel like he's discovered us a bit. And uh, mm -hmm. we've already had a number of uh, both email and phone conversations where I think we both have looked at each other and said, we aren't quite sure what the future is, but we think it involves uh, each other moving forward. So mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I'm looking, looking forward to that a great deal. Well, one of the things that's, uh, I think, happening, Dave, with even with hearing from Richard, one of the mm -hmm. things that happens is when we do um, find ourselves sort of bathed in, in an understanding of, of tradition, we, um, we tend to innovate um, in our own context a little bit, you know, like think about, hey, in my family, in my community, in my city, and, you know, I could see where it, this does give us a way of proceeding. That's, that's what I'm feeling. And so I think it's, mm. it's, it's a wonderful gift. And, and now at the end of our episode, we always wrap it up with a, a recommendation that would help us see more clearly um, mm -hmm. the city as playground. And like you said, when, when um, Richard's first sort of practice was to, to learn to see, well, he's uh, he's apparently been reading the uh, the history of LF because that, we've done several <laughs> podcasts on seeing the same. Right. But we wanted to to ask um, at the end of our podcast episodes, what is it that would open your eyes to the city uh, and see it more clearly the way God does uh, as yeah. a playground? And so it could be a book, a practice, a thought, a you know, a recommendation. I mean, so we always want to sort of uh, you know end in that way. So we get a recommendation uh, from Richard Beck. Wonderful. To me, um, beginning the day with an open heart. Um, and so I took this practice from Tish Warren Harrison's book, A Liturgy of the Ordinary, which is a really good book. Um, and one of the things she talks about is like the first thing you do in the morning and how that can imprint your day. I think a lot of us, what happens is the reason why we're so angry and we don't see our neighborhoods as playgrounds and we're already stirred up and we see them as arenas of competition is that the first thing that we do to imprint the day is we grab our phones and start scrolling through social media or a newsfeed and get triggered. And so suddenly we imprint upon the day anger or irritation or scorn. And so I, my practice has been to make sure I'm doing something healthy. So the first thing I do to print upon my day is prayer and petition and something that helps me enter, walk through that front door or into my neighborhood with an open heart rather than angry. So that would be my practice. How do you imprint upon your day? What is the first emotional, what is the first emotion you feel in the morning um, because you put something in front of you? Uh, attend to that and and my my hope is that if you kind of start your day in a different emotional place you're going to go out there with a lot more generosity and and whimsy and playfulness and anger and irritation and that the world is burning um so anyway that's my practice <laughs>